I mean, I like shopping. Is there anything so wrong with that? Stores are put there to enjoy. The experience is enjoyable. <laughs> well, more than enjoyable. It's beautiful. Welcome to the graveyard slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more hype or if they should stay buried. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sohini. And today, we're talking about Confessions of a Shopaholic. Confessions of a Shopaholic is about Rebecca Bloomwood, who is addicted to shopping. Despite the fact that she has a massive amount of debt, she ends up working at a financial magazine. And we watch as she tries to navigate love, friendship, and a debt collector on her trail. The movie was released in 2009, and it was directed by PJ Hogan, who is also known for My Best Friend's Wedding, The Dressmaker, and the 2003 version of Peter Pan. We wanted to talk about this movie because we realized that it had an unfairly low rating of 26% on Rotten Tomatoes, when we both have pretty fond memories of it. In fact, it's one of Sohini's all-time favorite <laughs> movies. <laughs> So of course, we had to cover it here on the graveyard slot and figure out if it's as unenjoyable as most seem to think, or if it's got enough merit to bring back from the dead. Good thing I know CPR. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when I was reading reviews of this film, two of the main things that stood out to me in terms of criticisms people have about this movie is that one, the timing of when it was released, and two, that people seem to think it has a confused message about materialism. With the timing thing, I can understand people's outlook if they had themselves been struggling financially or seen others around them not doing so well and then going into a movie that... It's the story of privileged people, basically. So I can see how that might have rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah, mostly I agree with you. I understand people avoiding it. But when I read reviews along these lines, my first thought was actually like consumerism and financial institutions taking advantage of people is kind of the core of this movie. Because they're saying that this is bad. If anything, I would think that the criticism would be that it's preaching to the choir. And what I would specifically agree with is that they don't do it enough. Like they don't hone in that message enough or like they don't go so far as to completely make these finance guys the bad guys, which the entire world thought at the time. But they are the big looming villain. So I don't quite understand people who think this is disrespecting people who have gone through hard times. Although I do understand not wanting to put yourself through this movie at the time. I think the reason why a lot of people were not happy about this movie coming out when it did is that they think it's glamorizing materialism and telling you that, you know, you can lead such a glamorous life if only you spend big bucks. So for example, one review that I felt was sort of missing the point of the movie is from the independentcritic.com and it says, the problem is that filmmaker PJ Hogan spends so much time glorifying everything Gucci and Prada. By the time the film gets down to moralizing, it feels misguided and vacant. And I think this it's just based on a misreading of the story because the movie is very much from Rebecca's perspective so we're seeing her viewpoint we're seeing the world and the world of shopping and fashion through her rose-tinted glasses so I don't think it's the movie that's saying consumerism is glamorous I think that's just Rebecca's perspective 
And I don't think the story rewards her for it. I understand where this criticism comes from, but like you, I think it's missing the point. Even if they want to say like, just skip the glorifying part, and I'm like, but it's about addiction. That part where the person is falling into this addiction, where where the person is still getting something from this addiction. It's saying that this is what it feels like as an addict. Yeah, and this is like anything negative that you might see on screen. Just because it's depicted on screen doesn't mean it's condoned. Exactly, and I think the movie doesn't even fail in doing that. It's pretty clear that they're saying like someone in Rebecca's shoes would feel that that way. Yeah, upon a closer reading of the movie, definitely I think it becomes clearer and clearer that we're very much in Rebecca's world. I do think the movie could have gone several steps further with this because it it does take us out of her perspective once in a while. So I don't think it would have been particularly jarring to have more of this where we as an audience take a step back from Rebecca's mind and get to see her irrational behavior for what it is, which is basically self-destructive and not at all glamorous. You're right, because they already have the talking mannequins, the narration, if they even ramp it up more, like also have other fantastical elements, that would work. Yeah, and I don't think it would have been out of place at all because one of the things I actually really like about this film is that it leans into the absurdity and it does it quite well because there are some really, (laughs) really over-the-top moments, but to me, it never seems strained. It fits and it works, and I think they could have gone even further. Yeah, it's definitely like also the fantasy of New York almost, right? Mm. And that's actually what I saw in a lot of reviews, that it felt like a knockoff of Sex in the City and The Devil Wears Prada. But actually, there is a review that I agree with to an extent from the Philadelphia Inquirer that reads, The film's recycled nature is most evident in director PJ Hogan's attempt to marry the facial hijinks of an I Love Lucy episode to an addiction scenario that would not be out of place in the last weekend. And this is part of a somewhat lukewarm verging on negative review for this movie, but I think it's actually correct and not necessarily in a bad way because they do manage to pull off a quite realistic and grim depiction of addiction and its fallout while doing a more comedic take on it and you know have it be more bubbly and full of hijinks and I don't think that makes it bad especially now if you think of what's in the television landscape we have more dramedies that are dark and really really funny they're pretty serious but they have these almost jarring comedic moments. It's more like dark comedy. Whereas this one, I guess it's more like on the surface it's a comedy, but it has these jarring serious moments. Putting those two tones and genres together, I think is actually a really creative and fun endeavor. And I don't think that that's a negative to this movie. Yeah, if anything, this review sounds kind of like a compliment. (laughs) Well, this review specifically is saying that the film's very recycled. Yeah, it's taking all the cliche moments. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. But I think there's enough freshness in it. Yeah, for sure. And like we always say, it's more about the execution. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. It's about such a serious topic, but it's 
also so lively and fun that at least for me it makes for a fun comfort watch i really enjoyed it the first time i watched it but it didn't really stick for me i don't remember much from it and this time around when i watched it it almost felt like watching it for the first time again i didn't remember anything that happened and everything you did remember was wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah i kept making guesses But moving forward, I think it can become one of my comfort movies. I really enjoyed it. It was just so fun. Yes, come over to the, not the dark side, (laughs) but to the right side. (laughs) Yes. As usual, we'll be discussing this movie in chronological order. And we open with Rebecca's narration. Yes. So we see a young Rebecca in a shoe store and it's immediately evident that her mom isn't big on spending because while the other kids get to buy these colorful sparkly shoes, her mom is buying her these ugly brown things that's kind of making her the laughing stock among the other kids. Yeah. One of the first lines is actually something about mom prices versus real prices, which I'm not quite sure what the thread is, like how it informs Rebecca's character in regards to her relationship with her mom. Because it's not like she has a rocky relationship with her mom. It doesn't seem like she resents her for one thing or another. You know, it was ju- it's just very matter of fact. But obviously some part of her addiction or her habit is fueled by this past experience, right? And even later on in the movie, we get lines from her mom where she's like, oh, Rebecca gets that for me. She knows how to save. And I'm like, is that true? Does she? All she got from you was like the opposite, in fact. It starts with that and then it goes nowhere. And I'm like, wait, are we just dropping that immediately? <laughs> the impression I got is that her parents don't really know about her spending problem mm. until it all Unravels. comes out publicly. Yeah. yeah. Until then, I think her parents are a little bit deluded into thinking that they've passed down these great saving habits onto their daughter. Yeah. But that's a good point. That's something they could have explored. Yeah, maybe it's even something like the mom never went out of her way to get more luxury items at a low price. Mm -hmm. And that's why Rebecca never learned to, you know, be smart about spending. Even though the intention there is to teach her daughter to be smart about spending in the sense that always just buy what you can afford, but instead what ends up being (laughs) absorbed by her child is that you just gotta pay what they ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wish I had (laughs) a more insightful analysis on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't either. No, it's a good question. It's an open question. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone knows... (laughs) Write to us yes, <laughs> at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com. We'll be waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we basically see the origins of Rebecca's spending problem in this opening scene. And then it transitions to grown-up Rebecca, who is now living her ideal life, I guess, because she can spend however much she likes and buy whatever she wants and the use of color is something i really liked in this scene same earlier on rebecca even mentions it right the fact that all mom prices get you are ugly brown things but she's wearing this quite colorful outfit like a pale pink jacket and as a grown-up she's still wearing pink but it's much brighter her whole ensemble is very saturated warm colors yeah exactly and it's like She's embodying everything that she couldn't have as a child. Yeah, I like that. And I think it's through this use of color that it's pretty evident that we're seeing things through Rebecca's perspective. It's like this idyllic fantasy land that 
doesn't really exist in real life because we know that the magic cards, as she called them, <laughs> actually mean something very different. I agree. I think the movie does a pretty good job at putting you in Rebecca's mind and letting you see the world through her perspective. The voiceover is obviously a big part of that. And a lot of times the storytelling tools are necessary and a crutch that's overused, but it actually fits pretty well here and adds something to the story, which is always the golden rule. Don't use it or don't do it unless it adds something to the story. And in this case, you want to know why this woman thinks and acts the way she does, how she can get herself into so much debt. What is it about shopping from her point of view? That's so desirable. And you even get a specific line from her that's like, you know, that feeling you get when you have a crush on a guy or whatever. To her, that rush comes from shopping. And it's like a way to make the audience relate to you. Also, another thing that I noticed here is watching this movie without any preconceived notions or biases, I thought they were poking fun at Carrie from Sex in the City. Going by reviews, it was seen more as a ripoff than a self-aware parody, but I think it can easily be either. The difference is that Carrie, she's a journalist slash writer who can magically afford all those clothes. And Rebecca instead is thrown into like life ruining debt. You're right. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Right? I can see it being a tired cliche or a tired character. But to me, it came off as a fun, self-aware, tongue-in-cheek thing. Yeah, it subverts your expectations that you would have from this type of character. You know, even working at a magazine, <laughs> she ticks all the boxes except for the box of infinite amount of money. Yeah, but that's the point, right? Like, mm -hmm. you want to tell the story and you're like, what will really drive this point home? Oh my god, let's take this fantasy woman that we all want to be and show the reality of her life. The point of someone like Carrie is that it's glamorizing that lifestyle. It's so alluring and attractive to the viewer and you're supposed to believe that it's real, that it's achievable. But here, that's completely not the point. The point is that we're looking at it from the perspective of a shopaholic, which is obviously a glaring negative. It's in the name. It is self-proclaimed. It's about how consumerism destroys your life. I'd say that you wouldn't say a movie about the downward spiral of an alcoholic is glorifying alcoholism, but I wouldn't put it past some people, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just, I'm so upset by that claim specifically because I get if you're tired and during this time you've already seen this character 20 times in the past five years but aside from that I don't think it's a valid criticism I'm upset <laughs> <laughs> If anything, I think a big indication of what this movie really is about is in the first few lines of the movie, they pan to her outfit and she's listing off the different things, but she's not saying the brands, she's saying the cards that she got them with. Yeah. She only mentions one brand, so it's more about the spending than it is about the actual items, which is a recurring thing we see throughout the movie because at one point, Rebecca stashes half her things away in a cupboard and it would be impossible for her to get those things out and wear them in her daily life. But she doesn't care. It's more about buying those things and owning them rather than actually valuing the brands themselves. It's also apparent in one scene where she buys the sweater that's supposed to be cashmere and the rush she gets is from spending ending it and not actually valuing the item like you said either the quality or like the prestige you get from the brand 
if she's the kind of person, because this is usually how it is, right? People who buy brands and stuff. It's more about like owning something of that brand. Mm -hmm. Then she wouldn't care that it's 95% polyester or whatever, because it would still be whatever the fuck the brand is. Right. Another thing we get in the opening of the movie is this montage of Rebecca shopping and talking about what shopping means to her. And there are these grand perspectives like from the ceiling down and it just makes Rebecca look really tiny in comparison to her surroundings. And it just felt like it's an indication of her identity getting swallowed up mm. by this huge addiction that's a great point later on as well she walks past these giant adverts and these huge people on the billboard and i love the contrast of it because it's just the real person in comparison to the larger than life surroundings yeah i agree the look of this movie is really nice and well thought out and not just the cinematography, but also the physical acting. I think it's just a bit of a treat for the eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very beautiful film. Yeah. Just just visually. <laughs> <laughs> the rest we'll figure out in this discussion. <laughs> mm -hmm. One line that I really like is when Rebecca compares a store to a man. She was saying, a man will never love you or treat you as well as a store. If a man doesn't fit, you can't exchange him seven days later for a gorgeous cashmere sweater. And a store always smells good. <laughs> to me, this line makes it clear that humans couldn't live up to her standards of perfection and this applies to her as well because i think a big thing rebecca does is use clothing and accessories as a way to hide these flaws that she thinks she has and idolizing this standard of perfection that's just not possible for a human to attain i agree yeah my notes just read you can't exchange a man girl i feel the same <laughs> So the actual story starts with Rebecca on her way to an interview with a fashion magazine and she tells her friend Suze that she's been wanting to work at Alette since she was 14 years old and she says if I can just get this job I will be happy forever which yeah. it is a relatable outlook I think yeah for sure and especially in the sense there has been times in my life where I thought that one job will be it for me like I will be so happy if I can just get that one job and you know it's not true definitely but she also really needs this job because she's just found out her latest credit card bill and I I think this is where your point earlier comes into play where you see her shopping and dancing around department stores but the consequences come crashing down on her almost immediately all of a sudden we see her facing that credit card bill and she looks absolutely horrified yeah for sure and i think this specifically really goes against the review that you found that said they took so long glorifying the consumerism of the story before moralizing I think just like addiction and recovery, they go back and forth. We're only just to the beginning of the movie. We haven't even started the plot yet. And we've already gone a reality check. And we've already seen the consequences of her glorifying material things. Exactly. Going forward, we keep seeing her going back to this behavior. Mm -hmm. She keeps spending unnecessarily and getting joy from it and temporary joy at that. And then crashing back down and then she goes back to shopping and getting a high from it and then crashing back down so i think 
it's actually really well done in that sense. Yeah, even though elements of the story are out there and over the top, it shows the very real consequences of addiction and it shows the struggles of navigating something like this. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, let's just say it. Is it because it's about shopping, which is right? like a traditionally feminine thing? Like, I don't understand. If it was about any other kind of addiction, would this movie be taken more seriously? The answer is obviously yes. That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Because I saw so many reviews calling it a chick flick, using the term dismissively, I might add. And one review said something like, now I can see why chick flicks is used as a pejorative. <laughs> so this movie was so bad that it finally made you sexist. <laughs> <laughs> So on the way to the interview, Rebecca gets sidetracked by a sale sign and she comes across a green scarf and the mannequin wearing the scarf comes to life and starts persuading her that she should buy the scarf. And this is a great way of showing the way Rebecca projects her own inner desires and her thoughts. She's basically convincing herself to buy the product, not just because it's beautiful, but because she's imagining this whole perfect life that comes with the product. So there's this quote, the mannequin says, the point about this scarf is that it would become part of a definition of you, of your psyche. It would make your eyes look bigger. You would walk into that Alette interview confident and poised, the girl in the green scarf. You can tell that Rebecca basically thinks that buying these things will turn her into her ideal self. And when this doesn't happen, she moves on to the next thing that she thinks might do the trick. And there's also this shot where we see Rebecca looking up at the mannequin holding up the scarf and we can see her through the green fabric and we see her admiring her reflection in the mirror when the scarf is draped over her. To me, it's almost like a skewed and discolored perspective because it's not the real her. Her sense of self is lost because it's tied to these external factors and we know that she's deluded about all of this, about how this will become part of her identity because one, she only wears the scarf once in the entire movie. And two, we see later on that she has so many clothes, she even forgets that she has them. So her telling herself that she'd wear it with everything is a bald-faced lie. <laughs> And this is where I wish we could break away from Rebecca's mind a little bit. Because if we had seen the external perspective, like just a shot of Rebecca from outside the store window, like circling the mannequin, draping the scarf around herself, it would have broken that very close tie we have with Rebecca's mind. And I think that would have done the trick in breaking people's impression that this movie is glamorizing consumerism. This is very irrational behavior on Rebecca's part, but because the movie itself is so beautiful, I think unless you're really looking for it, it's hard to spot that this is actually not a beautiful thing. Yeah, first I agree with everything you said about the mannequins. My thoughts is very similar that it shows her delusion and her lies to herself. And, you know, when I'm listening to everything that 
the mannequin is saying, I'm like, they kind of nailed it. Because this isn't just true for shopaholics. It's true for everyone. That's what advertising is trying to sell you, mm-hmm. right? This ring will give you a happy marriage. This dress will give you the best date ever. And none of that is true. But that's what you tell yourself. So, you know, it's true and it's very relatable. And this is why I kind of disagree with you saying, like, we should have more of an outside perspective. I think they wanted to suck you in. They wanted you to feel the way Rebecca does. And when you're in that high, suddenly give you a reality check and kind of bring you crashing back down. So I actually like that it's not in your face. And then you see Rebecca kind of like being a little weirdo, (laughs) Um, which would have been still fine. But I like the choice to not do that. And honestly, I don't think it's subtle at all. Like, I don't think it's like you can only catch it if you're really paying attention. So many critics missed the point. That's my issue. (laughs) That's because they're being dismissive. True. And I don't want this movie to be worse just to cater to those people. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we do see scenes not with Rebecca at all, like with Luke and stuff. So I think that argument would be valid because we get all of these other scenes with Luke. But otherwise, I think you don't need it. I think you want to be as sucked into Rebecca's perspective as possible so that you understand the overwhelming desire that's building in her and you're lured into this addiction alongside her. I understand what you mean. And that was my rationale that it's not like we're exclusively in Rebecca Rebecca's head all the time throughout the movie. But now that you say that, we have this dark contrast of Rebecca's excessive spending sprees and then the fallout afterwards. So I guess in a way that might dilute the sense of fallout. It might also interfere with the sense of sympathy that we feel with her because we're there right alongside her experiencing the things that she is. So fair enough. I also especially like how the realities of her life do kind of seep into her delusion because even as all of this is happening, suddenly we see her apartment and there's so many clothes. And even if we are in her head as an audience we see the truth of what's actually happening and so it's more like little hints of like reality seeping in you get the the bill and when she's talking to her friend she kind of lectures her on her charges on her credit cards and everything so i like that even when you're in the delusion even when you're in rebecca's mind you can't quite put blinders on that's a great point and actually i really like the contrast between the way her room is organized and the way we see it the clothes in the department store because in the room it's all organized by color and at first glance it looks quite beautiful but then you can see that every visible space is crammed with clothes and it's almost claustrophobic in a way but then in contrast when Rebecca's shopping these clothes are organized in neat little stacks and it's almost like oh there's only two of these sweaters and that's it you know you could be (laughs) the owner of this exclusive item that we don't have 50 more of in the back and it's almost like this dreamland versus the reality and the reality is still tinted by Rebecca's perspective but like you said it's hard to ignore that it's far from beautiful So Rebecca decides to buy the scarf, but perhaps unsurprisingly, she doesn't have enough money. So she rushes to the nearest hot dog stand and she's trying to get cash any way possible from the hot dog vendor when this man gives her the $20. So this is where she meets Luke, who is the love interest in the story. And the thing that struck me about this scene is... 
Rebecca slips into a lie so easily about the scarf being for her sick great aunt. And I realized rewatching this movie that we truly don't know anything real about Rebecca, except for the fact that she loves shopping because the rest of her identity is just a haphazard collection of lies. Yeah, I think that's what it is, right? She's built an image of herself using the clothes and the things that she's bought to become the woman she wants to be instead of actually doing things in her life that will make her into that woman. Yeah, and instead of using the clothes to accent things that are already part of her identity, she's using the clothes to try and build an identity. Yeah, and I do like that aspect of fashion, but I think it's the fact that it's coupled with everything else that she just becomes almost entirely fabricated by her dreams. Delusions, more like. Because, of course, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with using clothes as a way to develop or experiment with your identity. But I think it becomes problematic when you become too dependent on it. And that's what Rebecca's problem is. It's because it's not just that she's trying to build an identity. It's that I think she's trying to hide behind it. Yeah, and that's the whole thing with addiction, right? Taking this one thing too far. Yeah. So Rebecca arrives at the job interview only to find that the position has already been taken by a woman named Alicia. And just when she and the receptionist are talking about Alicia, she walks by. And if we're meant to be seeing things from Rebecca's perspective, I think the fact that we see Alicia's shoes before we see her face says a lot about Rebecca. I'd like to believe that's what it's supposed to be about and not just how every camera seems to take in a woman. Yeah, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) (laughs) I think it shows her mentality pretty well that the power that Alicia has, the status and the image from her perspective comes from her clothes. Mm -hmm. And her bag (laughs) pops open right when (laughs) Alicia walks by. And that moment is funny, but I think it's also indicative of Rebecca's perception of herself because considering her identity is tied to these objects the faulty bag is kind of like her seeing herself as faulty and not as poised as Alicia. I see that. Once she starts seeing Alicia as an object of desire, she's kind of reduced down to her parts Mm. because the first thing Rebecca says is she has the longest legs in the world. And maybe this is why we don't see much of Alicia throughout the movie because Rebecca just never bothers to learn more about her and all she is is long legs and beautiful designer accessories and clothes. Rebecca sees Alicia as just this collection of ideals. Yeah, not as a human with flaws. And Alicia does have plenty. So what happens is the receptionist takes a liking to Rebecca and gives her a tip that she should check out successful savings and apply there instead because they're under the same parent company. And I really liked that it's not just the go-to fashion magazine that we always get in women-led movies. Yeah, it's another subversion of the things we usually see. Yeah, the things we expect. And it's like, I like fashion as much as the next guy, but that's not all women like. like we, have, we have other interests. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shh, don't let them know. <laughs> It's just like, oh, a woman has a job. What should she work as? Well, it has to have something to do with clothes, right? And I don't dislike that a fashion magazine is her dream, but I do like that we see her in a different kind of job because that's what happens in real life as well, right? You can dream about it and you can work towards it, but it doesn't just magically appear for you. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> And yeah, that's also another thing that I like that she isn't a character who just has a job fall into her lap. Previously, she was working at a gardening magazine. She's literally working her way up to her dream. We don't know much about Rebecca yet. She's such a sympathetic character. Like she's someone you can root for. I think it's. Because despite how fantastical her life seems to be at its heights, she's surprisingly grounded and relatable. Mm -hmm. Like the thing with her job, you know, her having moved around, circling closer and closer to the job she actually wants, her extravagant spending actually having consequences, and her actually living paycheck to paycheck is very real. And the details that's building up her characters is really grounded, and it helps suspend. Your disbelief during the heights of the fantastical moments of this movie. Yeah, and I think her inclination to build an ideal life and an ideal self out of these external factors is something that probably everyone can relate to. It's a very human sentiment. So Rebecca agrees to go into an interview with Successful Saving, and her interviewer turns out to be Luke, the guy who <laughs> bought her the scarf earlier. The guy sees that she still has the scarf with her, and it's not for her great aunt after all. And you know he caught her in a lie, which is a pattern that will keep happening and a big part of the climax of this movie. This is a nitpick, but I was just like, just put the scarf in your bag or in your coat or something. Like, put it in your the pocket of your coat, or just say that you're gonna give it later. Yeah, I I guess since she made it out to be such a huge emergency, but I see your point because she lies a lot, but she's not yeah. great at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he even he asks her about. Her ability to speak Finnish, and again, she doesn't know how to get out of yeah. that. Yeah, she just goes into this over-the-top diversion to change the subject. Oh yeah, she should have just said, "I used to live there," because we find out that's true. <laughs> But yeah, this is a really funny scene. I really like it. Yeah, same. Here's the problem: Is Rebecca Bloomwood just another clumsy rom-com protagonist? The answer is yes. Does it work? Somehow, also yes. Ayla Fisher really pulled it off, and I think it's because that kind of almost slapstick comedy was more present in this movie. So it's less about just her being really clumsy, and rather the entire universe is this more over the top. You know, lots of physical comedy, and it's less out of place. That's a great point. I don't get the sense of Rebecca being clumsy in the quirky, not like the other girls sense at all. She's just a really awkward person. She's not smooth. <laughs> I'm sure all of these reviews think she's like supposed to be the ideal woman, and she's not. You only think that because Isla Fisher is playing her character and she's dressed up in these pretty clothes. But if you actually look at her character, she's not that quick and smooth and you know the fantasy character that you want to be, where you always have the perfect comeback or the perfect solution to things. She's just really messy. Yeah. So in the aftermath of. The interview things get worse for Rebecca because she loses her job at the gardening magazine. And on top of that, she finds out that her debt 
has racked up to $16,000. So we see her and her best friend trying to solve this problem. You know, I was thinking like, I know this is how it gets solved later on. But I'm like, just sell your clothes. I don't understand. Right. Because they have this whole thing about like getting rid of your clothes. And I'm like, sell them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The recent purchases, return them. I guess it's just because we're in Rebecca's irrational world. Because to her, these clothes stand for much more than just clothes. It's the appeal of having the perfect life behind those clothes. So I guess she's unwilling to let it go. Yeah, and for her, it's a part of her. She can't sell a part of her. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And to make matters worse, she gets a call from Derek Smith, who is a debt collector who's been trying to get in touch with her. And she's been lying to him about why she can't pick up his calls for a variety of reasons. Being sick, being injured, being away in a different country. But Suze is covering for her. She's the one picking up the calls and saying that Rebecca is unavailable. Yeah, and there's this wild scene where they're scrambling around for this list of excuses that they keep stuffed away somewhere. And this is one of many of these over-the-top moments in the movie. But I think it works quite well because the movie fully leans into the absurdity of it and it's reflected in these far-fetched excuses that Rebecca thinks up as well yeah and I've already said that her apartment is crammed with clothes and all but again I really like the set dressing for this movie the world of this movie is very believable and her apartment is no exception Mm -hmm. so Rebecca manages to make up another excuse to ward off Derek Smith for the time being. And she and Suze basically spend the evening getting hammered to confront Rebecca's substantial debt. And in her drunk state, Rebecca decides to send off an article to Alette and a scathing letter to Luke. But of course, the letters get exchanged. And so the next day, Rebecca finds herself with a sort of temporary job offer at Successful Saving and she realizes that she's sent this very (laughs) insulting letter to the editor at Alette. The scene where she finds out actually she's at this flea market with her parents and the colors, like it's such a contrast with the previous scene where she was in her apartment and the lighting was all pink and very saturated and warm. Whereas here it's all muted and gray and... And the things are brown! Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Just like she said! And I guess this shows the stark contrast between Rebecca and her parents and the differences in their outlook towards spending. And actually, we we see this kind of repeated throughout the rest of the movie as well, because whenever Rebecca is with her parents or also when she's at Successful Saving, the colors are more neutral and she's the one who stands out within them. Whereas when she's at home or she's shopping or she's at Alette, she blends in a little bit more. So I think maybe it says something that she stands out more at successful saving than she does at Alette. I think that your reading is quite accurate for the flea market because again it harkens back to the opening line of mom prices versus real prices and brown things versus the things that she wants to buy. But for successful savings, I think it's just more about her not being the typical hire for that kind of magazine. And this is another criticism where like this movie is trying too hard to be legally blonde, which I don't agree with, but it's supposed to be that effect. But the point you made with 
the Alette thing is interesting because I don't think that's true. I think even in Alette, she stands out because whenever she's with Alette and Alicia, those two are wearing like metallics and dark colors. But Rebecca actually has her own style. And we see that later on when they're picking out clothes together and she picks brighter colors instead of what Alette picks. Mm, that's a great point. Although I was talking more about the setting than the characters because she's surrounded by these similarly bright clothes and obviously she would fit in in this sort of environment but even though the movie is pushing her to be the fish out of water in a financial setting her talents stand out more at successful saving than they would do at a let i think yeah i agree with you in that aspect but I still don't think she fits in at Alette. Not just because of the thing that I said. Like, even when she's trying to, like, grab the letter back, the Alette offices is almost depicted as the sterile place. Yeah, true. So it does make me wonder now, maybe it's not true that she's pretending to be someone she's not through all these clothes. Because it is very her. Like, the style is about her rather than her following trends. I mean, yeah, she definitely has a very established sense of style. That's not the issue. It's just what the clothes mean. <laughs> yeah, I got that. I guess it's just different kinds of people, right? Maybe there are shopaholics that are also, I guess their issue is intertwined with looking for self-esteem in the trends that people tell you to follow. I guess with Rebecca, that's not part of why she shops. Yeah. Because I think it's her love for fashion that has already given her a very distinct sense of style. I do like that, actually, that it's not just about self-esteem in the sense that, oh, I want to be pretty. Because it's not about that. Yeah, exactly. Because like, you know, as we see in the Shopaholics Anonymous, they don't have a shallow perspective of this issue. The movie, I mean. It just happens to be that we're following a woman who is into fashion. She might as well have been buying, you know, really shitty clothing. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca manages to get the letter back from Alette and she ends up on this trial run at Successful Saving. The letter that prompts Successful Savings to offer her a job is a piece on shoes as investments. And I thought shoes as an investment is such a great idea for an article. Like It's a decent idea. A lot of the times, it's always like, oh, they're doing something really mediocre or even outright shitty. And in the movie, somehow the boss is like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> and it's like, you're just supposed to believe it because they can't come up with a good enough idea. But this one actually flies, for me at least. I feel like that is a good enough idea to pique an employer's interest. And I really like that Luke takes a chance on Rebecca, that he didn't dismiss her article just because it was using shoes as a metaphor. He's actually interested in taking this magazine somewhere new. And what he sees in that article is not someone who's shallow or quote-unquote just cares about fashion or can only talk in shoe metaphors. What he sees is a way to talk to the masses in a way that they understand that's relatable, that is attractive to people like Rebecca. Yeah, he has this really great line to one of his superiors when he says, you hired me to create a product that sells, not to sell a product. Because he's not looking to just take a shortcut he wants to genuinely create something that has value and helps people yeah and he involves rebecca in this which just shows that he's got so much trust and confidence in her despite their questionable first impression 
So we see Suze and Rebecca in this bookstore and she's picking up a Money for Dummies book (laughs) (laughs) so that she can do her job. And what they end up picking up as well is an instructional DVD on how to stop being a shopaholic or on that issue. And I get that Suze is pushing her into all of this. But even as the DVD is going on, Rebecca is still very much in denial. But then we suddenly see like a montage of her trying to follow the instructions. And she's not successful in following them. She exploits all these loopholes to still keep all of her stuff. I don't understand what prompts her to even try and follow the DVD. Because up to that point, Rebecca doesn't show any indication of possibly wanting to make any progress. I don't see what changed between her saying no to suddenly doing it. You're right. With the voiceover of the shopaholic guy in the background, it doesn't quite make sense. But for me, it's more like she's still in denial about being a shopaholic, but she just recognizes the fact that she doesn't have any more money at this point. I see that. One of the first articles she gets at Successful Savings, she tries to work on using her for dummies book. (laughs) (laughs) And Luke obviously notices, but then he catches her googling the topic that she's been assigned. Luke is actually pretty sympathetic and he takes her to this stockholders meeting for this giant company. I really like that he does that. He's a really tolerant boss and like he must have really liked her writing to take so much of a chance on her. And I don't actually find that hard to believe because he is trying to take this company in a different path. So it makes sense to me that Rebecca's perspective would stand out and would prompt him to do more than just a bare minimum, you know? Because he's not just taking a chance on her, he's taking a chance on his vision for this magazine. I really like everything that he teaches her during this meeting. And what we get from the scene is seeing that Luke is a good boss and a good mentor, and he's good at his job, and he's earned this position in the magazine. And that's important, of course, moving forward, knowing his background and all, that we know that he actually is very hardworking and very good at his job. Yeah. So after the meeting, Luke gives her a deadline, but once again, Rebecca gets sidetracked by news of a sample sale. I really like the turn we take here because it happens right as Rebecca is feeling empowered by Luke's trust in her because she takes in what Luke teaches her in that meeting and she is about to apply it to her work. And we get this whole like shot of her turning around and she looks so powerful. And then the thing that's been plaguing her this whole time, her addiction comes back and sucks her in again. And it's just so real. Like, it affects so much of her life. It's not just the little things, you know. It's taking her away from her job, making her miss her deadline, and of course, adding on to her debt. The thing with addiction, the thing is that it affects you all the time, which means that it affects you during the really important moments of your life. In this movie and in real life, something like this would be a big significant moment in her career and in her life to secure this job that she really needs. So it's something really meaningful. But then she loses herself back in this addiction and... I really like how prominent that was. That's a great point. And this 
sample sale is sort of like a stampede and everyone is chomping at the bit to get in and get those sale items. And this scene might be slightly stereotypical, but I've seen like news footage of similar things happening on Black Friday. And the whole scene makes me wonder how people can think that consumerism is being glorified because there's nothing glossy and glamorous about it. Yeah, for sure. And like you mentioned before, we see this up and down during the sale as well when Rebecca is trying her best to control the urge as much as possible. And in the beginning, she's just gonna buy a pair of gloves, but then she spots that pair of boots that she really wants and she gets into this fight with another woman and all of a sudden we see her surrounded by a mound of shopping bags. She just couldn't help herself and that is realistic. One of the heartbreaking moments is, you know, when she comes out of this haze, I guess she looks at her purchases again and they're not as they seemed when she first bought them. She buys what is supposed to be cashmere sweater that turns out to only be 5% cashmere. And it inspires her to write the article that she was assigned. She uses her experience and her disappointment in her cashmere sweater as the language of finance and she submits it to Luke and he really likes it. There's this funny line <laughs> during this scene when Luke asks, is it by Rebecca Bloomwood? And Rebecca is so offended. She's like, yes, my roommate Sue saw me write it. <laughs> <laughs> when the whole time he's just asking about the byline. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think that was so funny and really believable. And like, you can tell she does have this in insecurity of being part of this magazine that she's not quite qualified for. And she knows that other people wouldn't think of her as the person who would write for this kind of magazine. That's a great observation. Rebecca decides to go with the pen name, the girl in the green scarf. I don't know how I feel about that. Her reasoning is for it to come off as an everyman kind of figure. Well, that's what she tells Luke. But I feel like her actual motivation is that she doesn't want to be too associated for when she eventually wants to try and get a job at Alette. Which is really funny because it's not a secret that it's her. Alette knows that she's the girl <laughs> in the green scarf. So like her entire point is moot. True. But the article does really well. And Luke is praising her during their company meeting. And during this meeting, the receptionist keeps getting calls from Derek Smeeks looking for Rebecca. And obviously she's trying to dodge him. They end up transferring the call into the office that they're having the meeting in and Luke picks up the call and Rebecca climbs onto the table and snatches the phone from him and it's really over the top but I love how Luke reacts. What he does is literally he's just standing there like lost and his face is so passive. For some reason that really sold the scene for me. Yeah, it's that contrast between the one who's doing all the absurd things and the straight man in comedy. Yeah, exactly. What I noticed is when Rebecca is lunging across the table, the same music plays as when they were rummaging around the flat 
for her list of excuses and also when she was at the sample sale so it's like a recurring theme whenever she's doing something absurd that's really interesting i love that so maybe even though we were getting all of these glamorous shots of shopping malls and rebecca's poetic words about the way shopping makes her feel i think the movie is encouraging us to see it as another one of her irrational outbursts yeah So Rebecca ends up telling Luke that Derek Smith is an ex-boyfriend who's been stalking her, which will eventually have a pretty big fallout. And this is one thing I really like about this movie is that it has a good way of building on these mishaps and having a fallout for each of her bad decisions. And we see it coming. It doesn't appear out of nowhere because even as things are going well for Rebecca, she's also making these pretty bad decisions at every step that we know as the viewer that this is not going to end well for her her yeah it's a looming threat Mm -hmm. we get a scene of them wedding dress shopping for Suze, and this is actually one of my favorite scenes i really like their friendship i think she's not a great friend to Suze, even though Suze is there for her every step of the way it just doesn't feel like a mutually supportive friendship I think they do a really good job of showing how addiction can deteriorate your friendships and your relationships but i don't think that outside of that I mean, I guess the problem is that we don't see much of their relationship outside of Sue's helping her with her addiction. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't get the sense that she's a bad friend. But you're right, we don't get any proof otherwise. Yeah, every time they're together in a scene, it's mostly about Rebecca and solving Rebecca's problems. But maybe it's what you said about addiction impacting your relationships. I do think it's still a bad criticism of the movie. Because even if that's true, I still would have wanted more from Seuss, I think. I actually think that their relationship is really well built in this movie. And so imagine if it had been even better, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Again, I really love the way this movie is directed and performed. But there's this part, I'm sure you noticed this too. She's in this really big wedding dress and she's lecturing Rebecca about, you know, drowning in all her lies and her debt and whatnot. And she goes and jumps onto the sofa that Rebecca is on and her dress poofs up and literally drowns Rebecca up to her neck. I just really like how the script and the dialogue and the narrative and the visuals all thread together and line up. This scene really encapsulates how well this movie works because it's all of these moving parts working really well together. You're right. This scene, even though it might be one of the more unremarkable ones, it actually does do a really good job of establishing these characters' relationship. It all feels really natural and effortless and it's not at all hard to believe that these two characters are best friends I didn't get why Suze is suddenly teasing her about Luke. I don't feel the romantic tension between Luke and Rebecca. I think they have an excellent dynamic. I really like their characters. I like their characters together. But I don't think it's translated into romance quite yet. I also like them together romantically. I just, at this point in the movie, I didn't feel it yet. Yeah, it's more like she's signaling something's going to happen to the viewers (laughs) than she is talking to her friend. I understand if it's like, Luke is so nice, he taught me this, he taught me that, he believed in me, I think he's such a great guy, then I would be like, honey, do you have a crush on this guy? But there's nothing prompting it. 
Yeah, that's true. So we get to the conference and it's in Miami. But guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> My favorite character, Derek Smith. I really love the Derek Smith villain shtick. The way they frame him and the way the scene is shot and everything. But what Rebecca does here is change the ringtone for Derek Smith to a special ringtone that was like, do not answer, it's Derek Smith. But why couldn't she have just changed it to a special ringtone? Like a different ringtone. That's not her usual ringtone, but it doesn't announce to the world. (laughs) Part of me thinks it's probably like an advert for what your Nokia phone can do. (laughs) (laughs) I also like the way they characterized Derek Smith. When we get glimpses of him, but his face is hidden from us, it sort of reminded me of unseen dangers, like the shark from Jaws or like the T-Rex in (laughs) Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, well, it's supposed to be a comic book villain where you only see like their mouths and the way he Mm. talks and and how he shot from behind and it's just the shoulders and neck. It's all supposed to be a comic book villain and it's wonderful. Yeah, and I don't think anything less would fit the tone of this movie. Anything else might fall flat. Rebecca and Luke get to know each other better and they go shopping and what we find out is Luke, you know, he's got this really well-known family name and there's this one part where Luke asks her take on him. She says, you're a bad investment because you're a workaholic, blah, blah, blah. He looks so shocked. That one scene, like the way it was directed or just the way he played it really threw me off because that can't have been the first time he heard something like that. What I think he's shocked by is not the fact that Rebecca is calling him out to be a workaholic. It's more that he thinks working day and night, slogging away at this magazine is worth it. But he's shocked to hear Rebecca say that this is not going to get you anything in life because you're not reaping any of the rewards. I think this is something he didn't realize and that later spurs him on to start his own company and break away from this nepotistic family. And I think this is his wake-up call. That's a good point. It's really nice how the whole nepotism thing threads through the whole story, an ongoing present theme throughout the movie. I really like it. Yeah, and both Rebecca and Luke have opposing approaches to this nepotism thing because while Luke is trying to get away from it, Rebecca is taking advantage of it. And this difference between them is also reflected in their attitudes towards appearances because I guess it's a product of their upbringings because while they're shopping Luke says I don't want to be defined by clothes or labels or family and I guess getting judged on all these external factors and his family name and the wealth that comes with it have led him to prioritize internal things more like his values and his work ethic whereas Rebecca's sense of self is more muddled because she's been deprived of these external things in her childhood and so she views having those things as the ideal lifestyle so she's like the opposite of Luke where she places more value on these external factors the flashy clothes and accessories that make your life seem more glamorous from the outside so I like that they are sort of at odds with each other and I think while they're growing as people they help each other see another side to the story yeah I agree with you I really liked Luke as a character as well he has a bit of that whole like oh perfect rom-com guy (laughs) 
It's true. But what I do like is at least he has his own struggles. We can see him trying to make a name for himself. Yeah, and he has a personality. We also get more Felicia here. She hears Alette call Luke Mr. Sherman. All of a sudden, we get the clear idea that she's targeting him <laughs> for his uh, wealth. Yeah, we get that she cares about you know, wealth and status and image. But otherwise, up to this point, the movie hasn't fallen into the trap of making her the obvious, like, woman we're supposed to hate as the villain. Mm -hmm. But it does go down that route. Yeah. And I think it's really unfortunate because I don't think the movie needed that. She also doesn't have that much screen time. She doesn't add anything to the story. The character doesn't have enough of a personality to stand on her own. What I think she is which is the bare minimum is that she's a vehicle for rebecca's characterization because rebecca calls her the girl with the perfect everything with this she's pretty much doing the same thing that she does to the store mannequins which is just projecting a fantasy onto her because she barely knows anything about her all she's doing is just imagining that her life must be perfect and that she has everything she could ever want. I think it would have been more impactful if we had seen Rebecca's statement about her being perfect contrasted by seeing a more human side of Alicia mm -hmm. because then we would have seen how warped Rebecca's perspective is and how she kind of only sees people's worth based on their appearance and how they dress. Because she makes a similar comment to Luke before when she's like, if you know how to shop, why do you dress this way? And when he's in his fancy tuxedo, she's like, now you look like an editor. And she places more importance on appearances. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad to care about how you look. It's just that you're outside doesn't show everything on the inside. Alicia is barely in the movie is my problem. Mm -hmm. And we get such an entrance for her and then nothing <laughs> happens. That's just my entire problem with her character. For how little we got out of her and how like all of it was so shitty, we should have just not had her at all. It ends up just being detrimental to the movie. Suze convinces Rebecca to go to a Shopaholics Anonymous meeting and we see all kinds of people struggling with this addiction. Rebecca is still in denial, but she does this whole spiel about shopping and how it makes her feel and what it's about and what it means. I think Rebecca's little speech is a pretty good indication of where her mindset is at, which I think is stuck at the moment when she was a child and when she was dreaming about one day becoming a grown-up and having the freedom to buy anything she wants because she says this line all you have to do is hand over a little card and it's just so diluted and it's the same perception that she had as a child that all you need are these magic cards and then you hand them over and the shiny things are yours and the fact that even as a grown-up when she knows how money works <laughs> she still is clinging on to this delusion yeah it's pretty sad i mean i guess for her it's quite true she hasn't paid for any of that shit yeah she's like i'll do it later yeah <laughs> it'll be fine but we finally get to the ball rebecca's grand plan was to meet and impress the editor of alette magazine but it obviously backfires a little bit it's just the movie not rewarding her for her behavior rebecca's real bad at networking <laughs> But later on, during this ball, they got onto the balcony and Rebecca and Luke have a little moment and... 
as you know, I'm not a big fan of the kiss in this scene. Rebecca and Luke acting on their feelings at this point in their relationship is both hard to believe and a little inappropriate. His role is her boss and her direct supervisor and also like the big boss at the magazine. And I'm not saying like he's being a bad dude or like this is, you know, proof that he's actually a creep or a predator or whatever. <laughs> I think they should have just waited to have the kiss later on because at this point, They've just started becoming friends. Mm -hmm. And I think if they let that simmer and let that tension build, it would be better for the story and the structure and the development of their relationship and characters. Yeah. It's sort of the same as Sue's having to articulate that something romantic is coming up. Yeah. Because right after this scene, we get a pretty big fallout between Rebecca and Luke. And I think the filmmakers were potentially worried that we need a deeper connection between Rebecca and Luke for that fallout to have a bigger impact. They underestimated the impact of their friendship. Their working relationship as well. They complement each other really well. And they trust each other and they've relied on each other. Yeah, and I think it would have been impactful enough for this trust between them to break without this relationship also having a romantic undertone. It's just the movie needing it to happen. Yeah. Because they're like, we need to show that they are now romantically interested in each other. But it's like, we can see their bond slowly building and that's enough. Yeah. And it's even more heartbreaking, honestly, if their trust breaks right before they've even acted on their feelings. Yes, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> We get another encounter with Derek Smith, and this time, it's a personal, <laughs> no, personal contact. <laughs> They're in the same elevator, and she calls his number, and, okay, here's the thing. His ringtone is the Batman theme song, oh. and I love it so much. He's such a comic book villain. It just works so well. I love it. I love him. He's my favorite <laughs> character. She realizes it's him, and she tries to, like, hide her phone, shoves it into her bag. He calls her back and it rings and again she can't open her fucking bag <laughs> she has so many bags and she can't open a single one of them <laughs> she somehow escapes and is going to her appointment with Olette to get dressed by her for her upcoming tv appearance rebecca stands her ground and she picks out something that fits her own sense of style which Olette seems to appreciate Maybe it was just an evil plan all along to poach uh, Rebecca from successful saving. And then the process, she bankrupts Rebecca further. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, she doesn't know that Rebecca's in crippling debt. Mm -hmm. But they're about to. Yeah, Alicia picks up her phone when Derek Smith calls. And I guess we're supposed to infer from this scene that she's the one who gives information to Derek Smith about Rebecca, but it's not even explicitly said. It doesn't really go anywhere if you don't read it that way. Yeah. But speaking of dresses, we get to see Rebecca in a bridesmaid dress. Oh, right. But because she's actually attending Shopaholics Anonymous after this, she ends up getting both dresses confiscated and sold to a thrift shop. It really broke my heart. Yeah, and I get that Rebecca is protesting, but I feel like she's not trying hard enough. Yeah, it was so hard to watch. She ends up having to buy the dress back, but she only has enough money for one of them. So the question is, does she get the fancy dress for her TV appearance or the very meaningful bridesmaid dress for her best friend's wedding? And what do you know? TV! <laughs> yeah. 
She's on this talk show together with Luke. They open the floor to questions and who else would it be but Derek Smith? Dun dun dun. <laughs> I actually really like the way he introduces himself because he's like, I'm having trouble with debt. Miss Bloomwood's debt. <laughs> You're right. He is a comic book villain, honestly. <laughs> You know, this is where Luke finds out the truth about Rebecca's debt. It discredits her, right? Because she's been writing articles about savings and how to manage your money. Yeah, it's especially painful because moments before Luke and Rebecca were talking about how important it is to have trust. This is followed up by a confrontation between Luke and Rebecca. I don't know that I like the scene, actually. It's not nearly as powerful as... As the later one, with Suze. Yes, you're right. And in that scene, they don't even say much. And it's ten times more powerful. I think it's some of the writing. They already have such good setup. It should have been really powerful. Because their relationship is really well done and quite solid at this point. It was simmering in that scene when they were doing the TV show, when they just looked at each other and they couldn't say anything yet but then they couldn't really build up that tension yeah they just didn't pull it off unfortunately i think the thing with the kiss again having it so early and so out of place really cheapens this moment they really jump the gun with the kiss i agree one thing they don't really use during this conflict scene is the fact that Luke always stands up for Rebecca without fail. They just never like got to the meat of the problem. They didn't even say like, I trusted you or whatever. It's just like, it was all a lie. And like, the lie is like the surface level, you know? You gotta dig a little deeper. <laughs> yes. But yeah, in the aftermath of this fallout, we get this heartbreaking scene where Suze is emerging from the building to comfort Rebecca, but she sees this homeless woman wearing Rebecca's bridesmaid's dress. And she realizes that things have gone so bad that she had to give away, you know, something so important to their friendship. Yeah. Again, they do the addiction part so well in this movie because it hurts everyone in her life and every aspect of her life. How she was already relying on her friend for a place to live and finally loses that safety net when the addiction catches up to her and she you know, loses her job. Like you said, there's not much said in the scene. I think there's a line or two, but it's so powerful. It totally made me cry. The reason it's so powerful is because of everything that's led up to it. If they relied on history when they had the confrontation between Luke and Rebecca, then it would have also landed better. Yeah, rather than the budding romantic feelings from two seconds ago. They knew how to do it for Suze and Rebecca. They should have just done the same with Luke. Would have been much more powerful. But we see more of Rebecca at home. She's actually being visited by Alette, who has a job offer for her. And she ends up turning it down. I have to say, though, if I were her, I would have taken the job. Like, she is $60,000 in debt with no prospects. But, I mean, for once in her life, she's being honest. In the real world, I don't think you would turn that down yeah realistically fair enough but she comes up with the solution that's been staring her in the face all along which is that she decides to sell all of her stuff and the big prize at the end is her auctioning off the green scarf they have this intense auction for the scarf and this woman at the sale she ends up buying it and 
Rebecca, even though she snatches it away <laughs> at the last minute, she hands it over herself. And I have mixed feelings about the line Rebecca says about the scarf because she says it could bring you love. And she's still giving material things so much meaning in her life because it wasn't the scarf that brought her love. It was a chance meeting with Luke and she would have met him anyway, even if she hadn't taken the detour to buy the scarf. I wanted to see her disillusionment with clothes. Maybe the process of sorting through them and deciding what to keep and what to sell and realizing that none of these clothes ever had a hand in her achievements. It's true that clothes can make you feel more confident, but ultimately it's still you, not the magic clothes. <laughs> that line I really don't like for a different reason though. Like the love thing, it's not even lo like you kissed some guy like four <laughs> days ago. She should have said like it could lead you to places that you wouldn't expect or whatever, but not love. Like that wouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind when I think of this movie or like the journey that she's been on, you know? But you're right, the scene would be amazing if instead of building up the myth of the scarf, it's the other way around. You suddenly just see the scarf as nothing but a regular green scarf. But she's kind of, you know, let go of all this weight. She clears her debt with Derek Smith in quarters, I guess? <laughs> and it's actually a really fun scene. I do like seeing her with the jars around her. It's just like a nice shot. It contrasts pretty nicely with how we've seen her before, like lying on the floor surrounded by bills. <laughs> the one thing I wonder though is her attitude is, I did the same thing you did, uh, which is give you what you deserve, but in the most inconvenient way possible. And she makes it out to be as equal to what he did to her. And I just wonder if that is true because he was just doing his job and it's not like he didn't give her a chance. He gave her countless chances. We're supposed to see him as the relentless and often unethical and, you know, harassing debt collector. The problem is that Rebecca is a special case. <laughs> but, like, she should have paid her debts, but, like, she's supposed to be the kind of debt collector that's, like, harassing honest people and they're quite literally making their lives hell because that's what debt collectors are. Because they're not even, like, the real original owner of the debt. He's working for a company who buys up other people's debts. Because Rebecca doesn't even remember like what company he works for. Like she has to like track all her debts and like, oh now it's bought up by this company, right? Hmm. And those companies are predatory. Oh, that's why he was doodling sharks. Exactly. But the problem is that Rebecca is also in the wrong, which isn't the usual mm -hmm. case. <laughs> yeah. They kind of shot themselves in the foot here. Yeah. The only thing she has now is actually the bridesmaid dress. And she attends Susan's wedding. And I guess they've been out of touch this whole time. And it's a really sweet scene. It's your favorite scene, right? Yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes. Because I like that they don't say anything. Just her showing up at the wedding and somehow having gotten the dress back is enough for Suze to see that she's making an effort here. It's that kind of relationship where you don't really need words. And I think they portray that really well. It's a really touching scene. After the wedding, she's strolling down the street. And sees all these mannequins in the window dressing. They like 
try to persuade her to go for this new handbag or this new dress and she kind of signals back like I have a handbag and I have a dress and because she resists the mannequins start clapping for her the way I see it is because it's a projection of her internal state of mind that's finally showing internal satisfaction, not external validation. That's a great read. It's not that she doesn't need a bag because she already has a bag. It's that she doesn't need that bag because she doesn't need that to define her personality anymore. So she's happily (laughs) basking in the applause of the mannequins when she meets Luke on the street. And I think this is a nice parallel with the introduction scene where we saw her face-to-face with a guy and he was kind of smiling at her until he realizes that she's not looking at him. She's looking at a window display. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but what we find out is that he actually has the scarf because he was both bitters at the auction. My question is, why have two bitters against each other? I think it is useful to intimidate other bitters, but not to intimidate each other you're working for the same guy maybe one of them just went rogue and wanted the scarf for herself (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i mean rebecca even gives her advice on how to wear her scarf i mean she says like don't wear it with yellow which is unfortunate because she's blonde (laughs) so she'll have to dye her hair but that's the thing she's the new girl with the green scarf so that means Mm -hmm. she has to dye her hair red she has to change her name to rebecca and of course she has to shoulder rebecca's debt yeah it's like a magic sisterhood of the traveling green scarf (laughs) yes Now that we've talked about it in depth, and that scene auctioning off the scarf should have ended with her saying it's just a scarf or like her being disillusioned. It almost negates the whole point of the movie and the sale and everything that she gets the scarf back. Yeah, yeah, true. It trots a little bit on the character development, but I guess in a way it's him reaffirming that she's still the girl in this green scarf the writer that he trusted i actually like that no that works for me there's this little moment where they share a kiss at the end but rebecca kind of glances at the window display out of the corner of her eye and shares a smile and like a wink with the mannequin and I kind of liked it because for me, it maybe shows us that the appeal of shopping is never truly going to subside for Rebecca. I mean, that's fine as long as she learns how to balance it with other aspects of her life. I mean, that's the thing with like recovering addicts, right? It's not that the addiction goes away. Yeah. It's that you learn to not succumb to it. It's a somber ending. So, in absurd conclusion, (laughs) the buyer of the scarf will be the next girl in the green scarf and have to shoulder her debt. (laughs) Yep, the debt goes where the scarf goes. And it'll go through the generations. Every girl with a green (laughs) scarf will have to carry this burden. Forevermore. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and Rebecca, despite having so many bags, can't open any of them because obviously Sue has been gluing them all in an effort to stop her spending. (laughs) So she can't (laughs) access her wallet, obviously. If you think about it, that is what led Rebecca to stop shopping. If you think about it, really hard. Like a domino effect. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that was a really fun episode. I'm glad you made us watch this movie, (laughs) this favorite movie of yours. I don't know that my opinions have changed. Maybe it's just that I understand it better now. Again, like I said, it's a 
very well oiled machine. The directing and the set design and everything. And it was just a joy to watch. So I would 100% recommend this movie. It is a crime that it has 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, of course, I would agree with you. It's still one of my favorites. And after having looked at it in this much detail, I still really like it. And I found more aspects about it that I like. And I think it is horribly misunderstood by most critics. And I think it deserves a second chance. So I would absolutely recommend this movie. Mm -hmm. Next time we'll be discussing Hannah Montana the movie. If you have any thoughts for us to share on the next episode, send them in to at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs> <laughs>